Come on. Welcome to Lifeblood. This is George G, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, strong and powerful Ravi Sood. Ravi, are you ready to do this? I am ready, George. I like it. Let's let's let, let's go. Ravi is the chairman of Galani Gold. They're an unhedged multi-million-dollar gold producer and explorer with explorations and operations in Botswana, South Africa. Again, I'm excited to have you on. Ravi, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Sure, George. So I'm married. Uh, I've got three boys, uh, ages seven, eight, and eleven and uh, spend most of my time in Canada. And uh, I have spent, uh, I sort of, my career kind of splits into two phases. The first half of it, uh, which was not something ever designed to do or set out to get into, was in the investment world and ultimately ended with me running an investment company based in Toronto, uh, which I uh, later sold to a public company. And the second half of my career, which um, I, I sort of struggle to explain in in uh, any brief way, uh, <laughs> but I sort of describe myself as a, an adventure capitalist, uh, where not entirely by intention, uh, but just sort of the kind of returns and opportunities I'm seeking, I've been led to uh, what most people would call emerging or even frontier uh, markets. Uh, to do a variety of things. Uh, I, I never sort of pigeonholed myself into one business or the other, so I've been involved in uh, palm oil, uh, consumer products, uh, cannabis, uh, mining, renewable energy, psychedelics, uh, a variety of businesses, wherever the opportunity presented itself. Uh, but most notably, my, my two main businesses and currently my, my two primary vocations are uh, gold mining, and that's Galani Gold and Renewable Energy, another company I, I started a few years ago called Jade Power. Nice. So uh, we we were talking before we got started that uh, you are in Canada and you literally just, the lockdown just got lifted yesterday. So I've got a four and a one-year-old, uh, Ravi, and it was tough here, but having a seven and eight and 11-year-old boys being in lockdown for a year and a half, God God bless you. You know, yeah, and there's, there's several silver linings in it for sure. Like we've had an incredible amount of time together, and I think I, I can't complain much myself uh, in that I've been in a work-from-home scenario for over 10 years anyways. Mm. Uh, so for me, re- professionally, the only thing that was the change was uh, I went from traveling quite a bit, uh, a lot of overseas travel, to not at all, uh, so spending more time with the family, but yeah, it's definitely been a challenge uh, for the kids, uh, particularly three boys with all that boy energy and uh, usually expended on sports and, and uh, getting outside with their friends and having to uh, wor- learn from home uh, and spend uh, just a just an inordinate and unnatural amount of time staring at screens as a result of that uh, So and, and really being curtailed in other activities. So just just fantastic news that uh, things are going the right way in vaccinations and case counts uh, here and many places around the world. And uh, in fact, yeah, just yesterday, uh, coming out of our lockdown here in Toronto, uh, with the sun shining and uh, lots of smiles on people's faces, uh, it's a great feeling. Yeah, no doubt. So as you are 
looking at opportunities that are potentially coming across your desk or that you're researching, do you have some kind of a criteria for making decisions on this is what I'm going to spend money and energy and time on? That, great question and something I, I get asked frequently and, and just the sort of wide variety and, and, and sort of peculiar range of things that I've done in my career have prompted people to ask me that question. And also, where did, where did you get these ideas? Yeah. They're just sort of so outlandish. Uh, and uh, the, you know, apologies in advance for being glib, but uh, <laughs> I tried to figure out what, what has been my process and not really uh, been able to answer that question. And I've, I've tried to, I, I've decided myself that the best way for me to summarize what I've done and what's worked for me is that I just keep showing up. Mm-hmm. And at some point, um, quite a long time ago, now 20 years back, I went uh, from being a, uh, a academic or, or thinking I was uh, gonna spend my career in academics and uh, being very much naturally an introvert and uh, I, I just had an epiphany. I said, well, you know, instead of staying home uh, every single day, uh, why don't I just say yes to everything and just start seeing what happens? <laughs> it was, uh, it was uh, and if you're an introvert or a, a, inherently an introvert or a person who can identify with that, then you'll understand what I'm saying. If not, you might just sound, that just sounds ridiculous. But I just decided that, you know what, I'm actually just going to say yes, whether I want to do it or not, because in almost all cases, uh, my default answer would be no. And I started showing up. And when you show up, and that showing up means going to dinner with people, uh, attending conferences, um, taking the phone call, uh, replying to cold uh, messages that come through LinkedIn, uh, that sort of thing, uh, you know, it's amazing what starts to happen. And ideas flow and opportunities appear. And after you close, you actually do something and you accomplish something, you close the deal. And then what if you close two or boy, if you close three, and you're a closer and it just snowballs. So everything comes to you then, uh, wh- whether you really deserve it or not. That's just the, the law of physics in the commercial world. Uh, everybody's uh, following the path of least resistance and you want to go to closers. And so just, just this process of continuing to show up um, has led me to all these opportunities. And uh, you know, I, my renewable energy company, that was kicked off because I was at a Christmas party at my mining company in Botswana and my phone rang and it was somebody who I'd, I would normally never speak to and I hadn't spoken to for years and I thought why are they calling me at this odd hour uh, just before Christmas I just gonna take this call <laughs> this is a strange one sure or um, I got stood up for a meeting I was meeting somebody at the bar in the Toronto Four Seasons uh, and, uh, that person never showed up and some other, uh, person just started talking to me at the bar and, uh, that led me to, uh, within the next 12 months, uh, acquiring Unilever's business in the Congo, a pretty, pretty far uh, leap from the four seasons bar in Toronto no kidding. with a conversation with a stranger. So if I were to try to claim to you that I have some sort of process for <laughs> finding these opportunities and sort of sifting through them, I, I would just be making it up, George. Uh, it's 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 mostly instinct, and it's also driven somewhat uh, at this point in my career by my personal interests and, and what I want to achieve and uh, what I want to accomplish in life, and and just that uh, that habit of just showing up and and having open ears. And uh, 
Uh, another one that the, I'll tell you the principal asset for my uh, renewable energy company. We we own and operate 81 megawatts of uh, renewable assets: wind, hydro, and solar. Uh, the largest one by far is 45 megawatts. It's it's over half our asset base. Uh, that deal came to me through a cold message on LinkedIn uh, from somebody I didn't know. So, you know, you get those uh, those uh, you know random emails and outreach over social media. Well, guess what? If you if you take the time to follow up, it uh, they do lead to something every now and again. Okay. Amazing. All right. So, gold. What is it about gold that's 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 of interest to you? Well, it, it's it's been a long journey to gold for me, and I started my career in the '90s. Uh, my background's in, in mathematics and computer science uh, from an educational standpoint, and I started in the investment business in the '90s, which uh, the late '90s very much the the uh, the rise of the internet and the dot com boom. And being based in Toronto, we still. You know, not every opportunity and deal we saw was internet and dot com. We still saw the 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 ran, random stray mining company wander through our doors, and I recall thinking to myself, "Dude, do we still mine things? Like, is that a thing that people do? <laughs> <laughs> is really necessary in the age?" Uh, of course, oblivious to the fact that the building uh, I was sitting in and the debt, you know, if if, if it's not. Uh, if it's not made out of wood or grown through plants, then it was something that was mined somewhere, uh, hydrocarbon, uh, metal, uh, or otherwise, and uh, not realizing the the significance of it uh, and ongoing significance to the economy. But that was my first reaction to mining in general. Yeah, also, somewhat prompted by the fact that people in that industry, particularly at that time, tended to be quite a bit older. So you're seeing the uh, vibrant and dynamic 20-somethings using all the buzzwords and jargon out of the day. And then you'd see sort of uh, the the sixty plus uh, crowd with uh, you know the two pens in their front pocket, sure, uh, with uh, very long winded and, and boring presentations that I couldn't understand. So that that was how I first exposure to mining. Uh, but then I, I started to turn my turn my thinking around in the early two thousands as I started to understand the rise of China and, and ultimately India and other emerging markets. And this convergence of, of two huge factors. One was uh, the demand side exploding for, for metals of all sorts as, as those economies built out at a pace that uh, you know uh, outstripped even the post-World War II boom and a huge demand for basic commodities. At the very same time that you had had years and years of underinvestment in new mines because of the fact that commodity prices were low and the sector was totally out of favor, and this, that supply side was further pinched by that being, of course, about the same time that these huge stockpiles of various uh, materials from the former Soviet Union had finally been depleted. So you had these huge strategic reserves and stockpiles of, of different commodities uh, that were adding to the annual supply and sort of supporting that. That finished right at the same time as demand was booming, and you had this great uh, combination of factors that set off a huge boom in commodities and, and of course in their stock. So I got very involved in the stock market uh, from the mining uh, in the mining sector from the stock market perspective, but I still didn't get gold. And I thought this is I was in the shiny rock camp. Of course, it's a metal, not rock, but uh, I'll go with the vernacular and sure. it's the, the shiny rock camp. And like, what's the point of this other than making some decent jewelry out of it? Uh, what a ridiculous business and I, I get it how it made sense for the ancient Egyptians 
uh, but why are we even talking about it in the year 2002, 3, 4, 5, etc.? Uh, and I really only started to turn my head around on gold as sort of like the final domino in the commodity uh, chain for me uh, with the uh, advent of the financial crisis. And I started to, for the first time, really think about macroeconomics rather than thinking primarily bottom up and looking at uh, company by company and, and opportunity by opportunity and and really try to wrap my head around like, well, what does this all mean? What does uh, what are these sort of uh uh, macro level financial crises and, and uh, what, what, what does this mean for the economy? What does it mean for all of us as, as human beings on this planet? Uh, what's happening here? And uh, that's a process of learning that is ongoing for me. And I, I certainly can't claim to really understand it. And I think few do. It's uh, you know putting my old mathematician's hat on something I would call a complex and chaotic system which means that it's very difficult to describe uh, or claim to <laughs> control in any way. Um, there are there are powers that be, whether they be politicians or central bankers or finance ministers who do have buttons to push and levers to pull and policies to implement, and that does affect things in a, in a very significant way. But uh, all of them are sort of, uh, you know, part of this complex butterfly effect, and uh, the actual outcomes of their actions are indeterminate, uh, but do contribute to a, a very complex and confusing situation. So I started to think about gold and macroeconomics really starting in 2007, and as the crisis uh, hit full on in 2008, and, and started to to uh, ponder what is the meaning of gold in this day and age. And tried to understand it with a little bit more of an open mind, and I, I did a 180, and uh, I became uh, a huge believer in the significance of gold as a monetary asset and its role in our global system. And uh, it's something I'm still uh, constantly thinking about. And I'd say that the thing that's sort of shaken my thinking the most and caused me to spend even more time. Uh, an introspection in pondering uh, the relevance of gold is the rise of cryptocurrencies and, and certainly Bitcoin in particular, but not only Bitcoin. What is the significance of gold, which had for thousands of years a monopoly on the properties of being very difficult to increase in supply, um, not uh, degrading with time, unlike other metals, uh, and uh, being suitably rare? Uh, that no matter what you did to the price or what technology you threw behind it, you couldn't really materially increase the the annual supply of it. Uh, now, those all those properties which conspired together to make gold this perfect monetary asset, uh, it's no coincidence that it's been used. It's not just because it's uh, shiny and looks nice and, and people sort of value it from that perspective. Uh, there are all these other properties that really made it the world's monetary asset for thousands of years. But now we do have to think, is that changing? Uh, and, and that's a whole discussion unto itself and, and one that uh, I really enjoy having and, and learning from others as I discuss. Uh, but I, I'm still very much in the camp that gold is a critical piece of our global monetary system and is going to come back to the forefront in a big way and very soon. Uh, really, in the, I can't give you an exact timeline for it, but it's in, in uh, years, uh, not decades. Uh, gold will be something that we all think about and understand a lot better uh, than I think anybody in our generation or, or for the last 50 years really has thought about gold or viewed gold in that way. 
Uh, and, and really that belief is what inspired me to start Galani Gold. I started the company in 2010 and really kicked it off by acquiring our first asset, uh, what's the uh, Mupani Gold Mine in uh, Botswana. And now subsequently the Galaxy Gold Mine in South Africa and very recently actually just closed uh, a month ago. Uh, a past-producing gold and silver mine in New Mexico. So my first uh, foray into the United States uh, on a professional basis, and one uh, we're really excited about. That's a mine that was uh, in production until 2013, and it had to shut down due to a combination of declining uh, commodity prices in 2013, and also uh, too much debt in the company that owned the operation back then. So We've acquired it on a debt-free basis and, and believe we can get that uh, mine back into production in 2022. Nice. So when I ask this next question, I recognize that it's probably going to take us uh, right up until the end of our time, but that just means we'll have to have you back on. What is it, just as succinctly as you can, what is it that makes you think that gold's going to come to the forefront in a big way in the next zero to 10 years? So uh, it's the it's the monetary uh, system needs to be reset, and there have been resets over over the passage of time. Um, even in living history, the you know two two major resets being uh, post World War II or with Bretton Woods in 1944, just before the end of World War II, and with uh, President Nixon taking the United States off the gold standard uh, now 50 years ago, um, the system fundamentally changed. Uh, we've been for half a century in a system of uh, purely floating uh, currencies, uh, fiat currency system, uh, paper money backed really by nothing. Um, and the confidence that we have in governments is declining at a rate that just we haven't seen in a generation. And the financial position of governments, this, this coming crisis is very different than the one that we had in 07, 08. The 2007-8 one was um, in many ways a liquidity crisis, but it was a, a crisis uh, of, uh, I'll call it corporate proportions. So we had to bail out uh, big companies. Uh, we had to uh, inject money into the system, or rather the central banks and governments did, to make sure the system, the banking system, had liquidity and everything didn't grind to a halt. Uh, I think we were surprisingly close to that actually happening, but the policy moves that were made uh, sort of save the system from collapse, but at a cost. And political expediency, uh, human nature, and other other factors combined meant that it's very hard to come off uh, come off the gummy bear juice <laughs> after uh, after we were saved. Uh, we like things going up. We like things getting better every year. Uh, we like things being stable and and improving. Uh, we don't like cutting back. And uh, certainly politicians don't like to do that. It's not very popular with the voters. So we've just kept on the gummy bear juice. And we've got to a point now where, from a mathematical perspective, I'd call this problem intractable. Uh, there is no way out of the sovereign crisis that we're now facing. So instead of, like, call it a corporate level one, add, add another three zeros. So instead of talking hmm. in billions, now we're talking in trillions and the governments uh, won't be able to bail any bail themselves out. Uh, they were able to bail out the system, bail out corporations. Who's going to bail out governments? Uh, I think the reality is that the whole global system works around the U.S. dollar, and uh, it's functioned very well for decades on that basis. 
But uh, as we start to the world starts to lose faith in the U.S. dollar and the plausibility of the debts of the U.S. government with all its entitlements and obligations at a federal level, at a state level, municipal levels, uh, impossible in today's system to meet those. Uh, we have to think about well, how does this how does the story end? Does that mean that those debts will be defaulted on? Uh, well, that would that would be a system breaker. The whole thing shuts down. So I think you could eliminate that one, and and we go to a scenario which, uh, for Star Trek fans or others familiar with the term, they might appreciate it: the uh, Kobayashi Maru scenario, hmm. and that that's a, a reference to uh, a Star Trek term and uh, a scenario where no matter what choices you make you lose and so it's a, a lose-lose scenario and the question is how do you act in a lose-lose scenario and what what options do you choose perhaps you can lose in different ways that are more beneficial to yourself or, or to those around you or to those you're trying to serve and if I look at today's scenario it's a Kobayashi Maru scenario there is no fixing it we've we've borrowed too much from the future to make our, our, our present um, acceptable and pleasant for ourselves, there is a price to pay. So we are in a Kobayashi Maru scenario. But how do we exit this? Do we throw up our hands and say, default, it's all over, mm -hmm. system break, crash, uh, let's see what happens? I don't think so. I think uh, we take an approach of kicking the ball as far down the road as possible and inflating our way out of it. And we've seen the change in terminology from central bankers around the world uh, talking about inflation, uh, and it's a word that we never really discussed before, but we're certainly all feeling it as consumers, and that is the exit path. So if you have debt in the United States at levels not seen since the peak of World War II as a, as a function of GDP, uh, we came out of it, the world came out of that um, in, in a big way, in, in a roaring, roaring, roaringly successful way through growth, uh, through a demographic boom, uh, through a true peace dividend and through productivity boom, uh, through industrialization and, and the advent and increased use of technology in, in business and everyday lives. Uh, we are not going to be able to benefit from those factors to get us out of this mess. Uh, that mess uh, was caused, that financial mess was caused by World War II. Uh, this mess has been caused by financial engineering and greed. And the only way out is through rampant inflation and the uh, the people who get hurt on those are people who are saving dollars. And the people who are going to benefit and the wealth transfer will go to, well, those are with real assets. So real estate uh, will definitely, you might your house might be worth $500,000 today, and in 10 years it might be worth $5 million, but it's still the same house. But it's at least protected your wealth. If you had that, that uh, value in cash, that $500,000 in 10 years may only be $500,000 still, but it may be worth one-tenth as much in terms of purchasing power. And in that scenario, uh, in that reset, I think the best asset for central banks to go to, maybe even the only choice, is gold. And why is that my conclusion still? Uh, well, central banks hold most of the world's gold. Uh, they hold trillions of dollars of it. Uh, they have continued to buy it. In, in aggregate uh, really since 2008 after years and years of being net sellers they've been net buyers uh, I believe in contemplation of this uh, system reset and I think uh, it, it's something that is controllable uh, by central banks uh, other assets like Bitcoin are much harder or even impossible for them to control 
that doesn't mean that there's not an important place uh, for them and, and they may even dramatically outperform gold as an asset. Uh, that is a possible scenario. Uh, some would even say probable. But I, I still come back to believing that the only choice, um, possibly the only choice, but certainly the most likely choice for the asset around which to base a new currency system uh, after we've inflated our way out of this debt problem is gold. Fascinating. That is a lot for, for me, certainly, and probably lots of people to get their brains around, but I think you did an excellent job, excellent job explaining and uh, laying that out. So thank you so much. Well, Ravi, thank you, Ravi, sorry. Ravi, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people learn more about you? How can people engage with you? I Probably the best way to engage with me is through LinkedIn. I've got most of my info up there, and uh, I'm quite active uh, on that platform. And go ahead and message me. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, otherwise, not so active on social media, but uh, also through uh, my company website. You can find my details there at galanigold.com. And uh, I'd love to hear from people. Love it. Well, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Ravi your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. You can find Ravi on LinkedIn at also galanigold.com, G-A-L-A-N-E, gold.com. Thanks again, Ravi. Pleasure, George. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight as we are all in this together. <laughs>